Well, welcome to House Church. My name is Jonathan. So glad that you can be here with us. Of course, this is not typically how we host church, but we have been hosting it in this way for the past couple months. We're in a new series that we've entitled Believing and Doing the Seamless Unity of Faith. We're in James chapter 3 today. I'm going to read that in just a moment for us, but I want to say this before I read it. Today we're going to be talking about our relationship with words, most likely a complex relationship with words and with communication, with what James calls the tongue. Now, we are surrounded by words on social media. Uh, We're informed by words every time we check an email. We are guided by them every time we have a conversation with somebody else. Oftentimes, we are alarmed by them when something kind of creeps into our consciousness and our perception that we were not aware of before. But the reality is that we are the producer of words and lots and lots of them. Uh, Experts say that most people speak between 10 and 20,000 words per day. And so we need to pay attention to the way in which we speak and the way in which we dialogue with other people. And James has a lot of incredible things to say. So let me read from James 3 verses 1 through 12 and we'll be on our way. This is God's word for us today, verse 1 from chapter 3. James says, not many of you should become teachers my fellow believers. He's speaking to Christians and he's engaging with people who possibly would teach the word of God. He says, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouth of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is God's word for us today. Our words, according to James and according to experience, they carry tremendous power. And James wants you to kind of gauge whether or not you've given Jesus access to your tongue. As strange as that might sound, have you allowed the gospel to shape the way in which you engage with other people through your words? The world that we live in is plagued by the misuse of words, both at a macro level and a micro level, out there in society, but also possibly very personally. And as Christians, We have an opportunity to use words in a way where people generally don't offer blessing, but we do. Where Christians are able to offer blessing, where the expected norm is generally or has become outrage, anger, conflict, 
and intolerance? Is there another way of thinking about the way in which we use our words and communicate, especially in a polarized time and a moment like this? So three things I'm going to walk you through from this chapter. Number one, we're going to look at the creative power of words. Number two, we're going to look at the revealing power of words. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the redemptive power of the word, right? Jesus, the word made flesh. So number one, we're going to look at the creative power of words. John Tyson, who is a pastor in New York City, he's written a new book that's entitled The Burden is Light. Tyson writes this. He says, we live in a careless culture in which our words are often mediated through screens, giving people an emotional distance from the impact of their speech. A thoughtless word can become the splinter in the soul that if infected with the lies of the enemy, produce lives of pain and despair. Now, as ordinary as this might sound, and it's really hard to capture right, the intensity and the importance around our words, but our words and our conversations give shape and direction to nearly every aspect, every facet of our lives. If you think about it, the ability to talk, the ability to engage in meaningful communication, meaningful speech is something that sets us apart from every other aspect of creation. In fact, the ability to communicate with words is a prominent aspect, a really important aspect of what it means for us as human beings to be created in the image of a God whose creative genius is marked by the fact that he spoke creation into existence. Just the other day, just a couple weeks ago, we were able to get out of town for a little bit of time as a family to get up to the mountains. And one of my favorite things about going to the mountains is that you get to see a clear night sky in a way that you never get to see it if you live close to a city or a metropolis, uh, kind of an urban area, suburban area, where there are all these lights coming from the club. I mean, all these lights coming from, from uh, the city and from the burbs. You, you have an opportunity to be on top of a mountain where there are no lights that are trying to compete with the beauty and the glory of the stars. And so we had gone, gone out one night, and I said to the kids, I said to Danielle, we have to kind of prepare for an evening of stargazing. And so we have a van, an incredible minivan, by the way. We took all the seats out of it. Oh, we got it ready for an evening of stargazing. We popped some popcorn. We got some hot chocolate. got some adult beverages. And then we kind of put blankets and pillows in the, in the van. And we went out to this lake, and we gazed up into this incredible horizon where you could see, I don't know how many, thousands upon hundreds of thousands, if not possibly millions of stars in our little stretch of the sky. You don't get to see that here in San Diego, but when you go up to the top of a mountain, you get to see it. And so we had our little kind of stargazing app, and we're trying to point out different planets, and we're pointing out different constellations. But as we were there in that conversation, I whispered to my children, don't ever forget, words created this world. And words created those stars. See, in the very beginning, God spoke the entire cosmos into being. And on the sixth day, he created human beings in his image and likeness. And this is so important. And because we are made in his image and because we are made in his likeness, we have been given a unique ability to create worlds with our words, just like him. And this is James's point as chapter 3 takes off. Remember in those first two verses, James gives a very clear warning to folks who are considering being teachers of the Word of God, 
pastors and preachers. He, he's going to hold us accountable. He says, those of you who would be teachers, you have to recognize the power and the potential of good and harm in the way in which you lead people. The way in which you value or disvalue words matters immensely. You have to be held accountable. We will be judged more strictly. And I take that seriously as I try to get into the Word of God with you each week so I can guide you well and guide you wisely. But after you get over those first two verses and we pick up with verse three, we read this. James says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by, by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. And see, James uses these really well-known illustrations and examples. He uses the illustration of the bit in the mouth of a horse, a little rudder on the back of a huge ship, and of course, a small spark that can create a huge forest fire when he's trying to describe the tremendous potential and power of the tongue and of our words. And clearly his point, if you boil all of that down, James's point is simply this, it doesn't take much. That's his point. It doesn't take much to create a world of flourishing and confidence and joyful celebrating of who we are in our identities. But at the exact same time, it does not take much to create a world of deep insecurity and hiding and shame and guilt where the storylines of our lives are fearfully propelled forward by this effort to restore what an ill-spoken word or an ill-spoken conversation has created in our lives. It does not take much. Think about the worlds that are created by these statements. You disappoint me all the time. What sort of world is created around a human soul when they hear that over and over and over again? What type of world do they begin to live in? What sort of storyline are they inhabiting? You disappoint me all the time. I can't believe that you'd even attempt that. You're not smart enough to try. You're stupid. You're fat. Why can't you be more responsible? More like your brother, more like your sister. You'll never amount to anything. Or you're a poor provider. My father gave so much more to my mother. See, these words create worlds where we wrestle with realities and lies and shame and guilt and complexes. And we often end up self-medicating, searching for coping mechanisms to take the painful edge off the reality, off the world that we now inhabit. Maybe this is you. Maybe this is your life. Maybe this is your world. Or potentially, those are the worlds that you are creating for other people. But think about the worlds that words like these create. You bring me such joy. You make me so proud. I love you. Oh, how about this one? You made a mistake, but I forgive you, and we can easily move on. Or you can do it. 
keep trying. We believe in you. What type of world does that allow somebody to inhabit when you speak like that and you bless them and you don't curse them? See, and the better you know someone, this is really important, the better you know someone, the more power your words carry for their blessing or for their wounding. See, a stranger comes up to me and he says to me, man, I despise you. I don't like you. You got no style. You got, you, you know, you're ugly. They say something that's disrespectful to me. If they're a stranger, we have no personal connection. If they say to me, I despise you, I can kind of shrug it off, think it's strange and move on. But if somebody who knows me deeply comes to me and says, I despise you, I don't want to be around you. If that's a child, if that's a husband, a wife, or a parent, the proximity and the, and the closeness of that relationship, it changes the way in which those words speak to me, the way in which they create a world for me to inhabit. Paul Tripp says, words are powerful, they're important, they're significant. It was meant to be that way. When we speak, it must be with the realization that God has given our words significance. He has ordained for them to be important. Part one, the creative power of words. But part two is this, the revealing power of words. Keep in mind that Jesus is the half-brother of James. This is kind of like a family narrative, a family story. Jesus, the half-brother of James, he understood the revealing power of words too. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about how to discern what's really going on deep down in the recesses of the human heart and the human soul. And here's what he says. Jesus says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. This sounds very similar to what James has been saying. A good man, verse 45, says, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. Here's the kicker. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. For the mouth speaks what the heart is is full of. And I think Jesus, like James, his point is pretty simple. The tongue, our speech, is this spiritual barometer of what's really going on below in the surface, below the surface within our hearts. And this rubs so quickly against this culture of immediacy, this kind of fast food, fast spirituality concept that we would rather embrace. Because even if I were able to agree with Jesus just for a moment that what he says is actually true, that what comes bubbling out of my mouth is generally that which is bubbling already in my heart and in my soul and in my spirit, even if I were to agree with him, I would probably not agree with the remedy where he says, I got to get into the heart and not just the mouth. I would rather you give me a new habit. Give me some new practice. Give me something that's going to tame the tongue right here in the moment, right now rather than to get deeply into, deeper into the heart and the soul of things, because that's its fountain, that's its spring. I'd rather lean against that. A culture of immediacy, a culture of easy spirituality says, let's just give you a quick practice. But what Jesus says is, if I want to change the way in which you speak and engage, I've got to get in. I've got to get into the heart. James, as well as Jesus, they knew that fixing the tongue actually impossible apart from fixing the deeper problem and healing of the human heart. Look at verse 7. 
In verse 7, James says, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. Then he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. In other words, lions, tigers, bears, killer whales, thank you, sea world, check, all of them have been tamed. But, James says, no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. He leans in, he says, you know what? Our words are so often filled with inconsistencies. He says, in one moment you're at church, you got your hands up, your eyes are closed, and you're praising God. And then the next moment you get in the car and you erupt on a family member. What gives? What's going on in the heart? See, if the heart or if the tongue is a spiritual barometer, what's really going on in our heart and our soul and paying attention to the inconsistencies in our speech, the way in which we engage, one moment saying, praise Jesus, and the next moment saying, curse you. And the reality is that the cursing is not literally always a curse. It can be kind of a rolled eye. It can be a delayed, I love you. It can be a lack of encouragement. There are all sorts of ways to use and misuse our words or to not even offer them in the first place. Don't make this too narrow. Think generally about the way in which we engage and communicate. Communication is the key. See, the sad irony of life in a fallen world is that as human beings, we take the things that make us most like God as people who are created in His image, and we use them in ways in which he never would. See, and God uses speech to bless, but we look at those who are created in his image, the most precious part of his creation, and in one moment we praise him, but in the next moment we demean those and tear down people who are created in the image of this God. When you look at your life, when you look at the way in which you speak and engage other people, what do you see? What do your words reveal? What do they show you about your heart? Maybe a related question is, what worlds are your words building amongst those around you? I mean, are they worlds of peace and confidence and hope and love? Is that the world that your speech is creating? Or are there different types of worlds? Worlds of insecurity and shame and hiding and fear. Are you offering a curse to those around you, or are you offering a blessing? If you see that inconsistency, and listen, that's the whole point. James goes, all of us are inconsistent. Then we have to lean in and go, well, where's the solution? Where can I get that thing that is going to transform, of course, my heart and not just my speech? This is where we get to the third part, the redemptive power of the Word made flesh creative power of the word, the revealing power of the word, but really what we need is the redemptive, healing, changing power of Jesus, who calls himself the word. So let me take you through this part. In his book, A Gentle Answer, a writer by the name of Scott Saul says this. He says, whatever the subject may be, politics, sexuality, immigration, income gaps, women's concerns, race, or any other social matters of which people have differences, Angst, suspicion, and outrage, and outright hate 
increasingly shape our response to the world around us. In our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising, more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, more rewarded than rejected. You would probably say yes and amen. I understand what he's describing in our current moment. Outrage has become common. When we look into the pages of the New Testament Gospels, those four books that capture the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, you're actually going to find that outrage was a common part of their ancient cultural moment, but for very different reasons. Jesus did not appear, as you read through the Gospels, Jesus did not appear to follow the rules that had been laid down by the religious leaders of his day. In a sense, when you read through the Gospels, it seems like Jesus is always coloring outside of the lines. He was saying things and he was doing things that made the religious authorities uncomfortable. And case in point is this, that Jesus was consistently blessing people who were outside of the boundaries of social acceptance. Jesus was consistently using his words to speak blessing and honor and, and prestige and value into the life of people who were not supposed to be valued, who were not supposed to be blessed. These people were unclean. These people were outsiders. These were Gentiles. These were people who were unacceptable, clearly not worthy of the grace of God or the blessing of larger society. See, but Jesus did not play by those rules. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a long, gracious, redemptive conversation with a woman who is a Gentile Samaritan outside of the bounds of social acceptance, a woman who we learn quickly has had five husbands, and the man that she is currently living with is not, in fact, her husband at all. And where other people would have moved in to condemn her, Jesus has a conversation with her in order to heal her and forgive her. In John chapter 8, Jesus saves the life of a woman who is caught in adultery. The authorities come around her. They're ready to stone her. Jesus has the audacity to bless her, to help her, to heal her, and to protect her. Everyone wanted to condemn, but Jesus wanted something different. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells the, the story of a chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. He says to that man, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. But the reason he says that to Zacchaeus is because he says, I want to engage with you. I want to know you. I want to host you. You think that you're hosting me, but actually, Zacchaeus, I have come for your heart. All of these people over and over and over again outside of the social norms for acceptability and grace and blessing. And because of what Jesus spoke and to whom he spoke it, Jesus came across as the scandalous, outrageous individual teacher, preacher to his contemporaries. And their disdain for the way in which he lived, for the way in which he loved, for the way in which he spoke only grew and grew until they took him to the cross. That amazing cross where the word of God where the word made flesh, took all of our curses, all of our misplaced words, all of our divided hearts, all of our sin and shame, and in its place, he offered blessing and forgiveness. You see, in the redemptive power of the word made flesh, Jesus creates, listen, 
The redemptive power of this word creates a new world unlike anything you've ever seen. And it's a world of possibility. It's a world where you don't have to, to work and to labor for blessing, but you actually get to work and labor from blessing. You don't have to kind of work for grace. You get to work from grace. You don't have to earn God's good word over your life, but because you already have it, because it's outrageously been offered through Jesus, our healer and savior, you can live so differently. In Luke chapter 24, as we get to the end, in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus was taken into heaven, the last part of Luke's telling of Jesus' narrative, Luke records that Jesus took his disciples out to the region called Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. And literally, can you envision it? Jesus is speaking blessing over his disciples as he is taken up into heaven. In other words, like as he disappears, the last thing they hear and the last thing they remember seeing is the blessing of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, the grace of Jesus being spoken over them. The word made flesh is still speaking and blessing in his last moments on planet earth so that as his disciples back up, and they go back into their life, they go back into the world in which they lived, they begin to do ministry from blessing and not for blessing. And if we're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you're listening, that is the potential and the power that you have as well. That is the redemptive world that Jesus is creating through his kingdom. It's a different way of living. It's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of relating to God and other people. We live from blessing and not for it. So what if, as one writer said, what if instead of condemnation, we became known for giving benediction? What if instead of being on the hunt to catch people doing wrong, we went on the hunt to catch people doing right? What if instead of looking for someone to curse, we started looking for someone to bless? What if instead of naming people according to their worst behaviors and features, we named them according to their best and most God-reflecting ones. See, our words, they create worlds. And the invitation then, friends, is to give Jesus your heart so that he can bubble over in your heart. He can begin to change you from the inside out, and it's going to have an impact on the way in which you speak because we live in a moment, and we follow a God who wants us to have a different sort of voice in a world of outrage, in a world of anger, in a world of division? What if people who follow Jesus were known by a different voice, a different word? What if the redemptive possibilities that were open because we follow Jesus totally transformed maybe just your family, and then another family, right? And then a neighborhood, and then by God's grace, something even bigger, maybe a city where people come and they go, I want to know why you live. I want to know why you speak. The world is outraged. The world is angry. But Christians, they offer blessing upon blessing upon blessing. It doesn't mean we ignore truth, but we do it in a gracious way that the world will pay attention and listen. This is our hope, and this is what James offers, and this is what Jesus is about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are all confronted uh, by what James had to say, but hopefully they've heard it in a way that's gracious and kind and hopeful. Because remember, James is speaking to a group of Christians who have been scattered. They're not together. They've been pushed out of home base. 
They're probably not meeting together on Sundays with regularity. They're trying to figure out new rhythms in foreign spaces. And James says the way in which you speak is an example of the gospel shaping all of you. But for it to get deeply into your practices, it's got to get deeply into your heart. And so I admit, Lord Jesus, the inconsistencies in my own speech, the way in which I can use it to teach your word and to hopefully build up a church, but then in the next moment can turn it to tear down my children or to have an argument with my wife. How easy it is for us to use our tongue in divided ways. And so we hold our hands out and we say, Jesus, come and redeem that part of us. Redeem our souls so that our words reflect grace and kindness, so that the worlds that we create through our words reflect Jesus, the gracious one, the kind one, the healing one, the forgiving one. It's in his name that we give you all things, including our mouth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.